Welcome to the EDS at Union podcast. We are back for the fall semester and we'll have weekly episodes for you in your podcast feed from now until the winter break. On today's episode, Dean Kelly Brown Douglas speaks with Corinna Gore from Union Center of Earth Ethics. They discuss the moral dimensions of our ecological crisis, how environmental issues are playing out in the presidential primary, and Corinna tells us more about her recent New York Times op-ed. The Center of Earth Ethics is an institute here at Union Theological Seminary that bridges the worlds of religion, academia, politics, and cultures to discern the necessary steps to stop ecological destruction. They serve as a valuable resource for our students, and we are lucky to have them on campus. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and help us spread the word by sharing the show with your friends and family. And with that, here's our conversation with Dean Douglas and Corinna Gore. Good afternoon. Today, I am honored to have with me Corinna Gore. Joining me here at EDS at Union in our conversations that we regularly bring to you as we try to engage that issues of faith as they relate to issues of social justice. Corinna is the director for the Center of Earth Ethics here at Union. She has long been a moral voice and activist sounding not only the alarm regarding climate change and the wider ecological crisis, but also in refocusing the way in which we think about this issue and the care of creation. And if that were not enough, Corinna is the author of a recent New York Times column on Alison Hamilton, who we will talk about a little bit later. And she is the author of the book, Lighting the Way, Nine Women Who Changed Modern America. I hope to talk with you about all of these topics in this brief conversation today, Corinna, but first let me thank you for taking the time and joining me. Thank you so much, Kelly, Dr. Douglas, well, Dean Douglas. You may call me Kelly <laughs> if I may call you Corinna. Uh, I'm really honored to, to be in this conversation, to be a colleague of yours, and I want to thank you so much for, for your time and, and for the opportunity to think through some of these issues together. Well, thank you. It's, it's an honor for me. Let me jump right in. In previous conversations, you have spoken about growing up between a farm in Tennessee and the suburbs of Washington, D.C. How, I want to ask you, do these paradoxes of moving between the life of the farm and the politics of D.C. inform your understanding and approach to the climate ecological crisis? Oh, thank you for that question. It's I would say that um, the context in which I was moving between those two places mm -hmm. was because my father was representing uh, a rural district of Tennessee, first in the House of Representatives mm -hmm. and then the state of Tennessee in the Senate, um, starting in 1976 uh, when I was three years old. So I always understood it in the context that we were in Washington because he was representing the people of Tennessee, and that there was something uh, very important about those voices being heard in the nation's capital, and representative democracy had a, hmm. a, a, a sacred meaning, and that it was an honorable thing to be part of it. So I want to say that, that first. I also got the sense that there was something more 
real in some way about life in Tennessee, that that was where the roots were, that the connection to the land and the community there was something that was uh, to be cherished and, and lifted up and somehow would be sorted through in the conversations in DC about mm -hmm. policies and laws. For me personally, I always felt the, uh, just the, the smells and the sounds and the proximity to the river and the animals mm -hmm. uh, and a small town community to be very enriching. Um, and so I think when I think about the environment and ecology, uh, I do hearken back to uh, what that felt like there. And um, the, the contrast to any city life, I suppose, um, is of course just the degree of what we know, what is now called the Anthropocene, the human beings shaping the environment so as to kind of um, make the rest of the natural world more and more invisible. Right. Um, so for me, it was an interesting way to, to grow up, and, and I suppose it does inform my, my view of Earth ethics. Right, and, and perhaps your view of how we can create a change uh, uh, in terms of not simply how we talk about it, but how indeed we implement right uh, our vision, which leads me to another question, and that's in light of the discussion of the Democratic candidates last night, right, on climate change mm -hmm. and on the environment. Mayor Pete Buttigieg framed climate change as a faith issue, saying in his words, less and less about the planet as an abstract thing and more about specific people suffering harm mm -hmm. because of what we're doing right now. He said, one way of talking about this is that it's a kind of sin. You have framed it as a moral issue. What do you mean by that? And what difference does that make in how we engage this ecological crisis? And uh, are you and Pete Buttigieg saying the same thing in this regard? Oh, that's such an interesting question. I was watching, and I definitely noted that from Mayor Pete, and of course, it's not the first time that he has used that language and called people to think about this in a different context, to draw on uh, their deep sense of, of morals and ethics. And for many, that does include some conception of the divine. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's very important that we look at what's happening now to the health of our earth uh, from a viewpoint that is able to take back to, to peel back some of the layers of illusion that we have about what's actually important um, oscar wilde wrote a, he had a character say that a cynic knows the price of everything and the value of nothing mm. And we live in a discourse in which things like economic growth are held up as this moral imperative. It's not specifically stated as such right. that this is our supreme being and our moral uh, mandate, but that is the language around it. And it often just comes down to money. Right. And it doesn't matter how inequitably distributed it is. It doesn't matter the costs that aren't being counted to future generations, to the depletion of resources, to the pollution in the air and the water, to everything commonly held as good. Um, and so I think that that 
um, being able to look at the truth and really reason is as much an ally of ours in this as faith, mm -hmm. I believe, mm -hmm. because it is unreasonable <laughs> to think that we will not end up suffering, first the most vulnerable among us, then all of us, if we foul our own nest, <laughs> if we just dirty it, deplete it, pollute it, that somehow this is all uh, not going to count because we're not putting it on balance sheets in tall buildings. Mm -hmm. With people who are counting their profits, but then and so I believe that talking about it as a moral issue, talking about it through the lens of 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 faith, is very powerful because it just is a different value system than the one that is only about money, which is really not. It's right. not in the end the most real thing in the world, and certainly the way the money is being counted is incredibly inequitable. So I appreciated. Uh, what I heard last night, and of course the language of sin, I believe it has been used most forcefully in my experience from what I've, I've read from uh, ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew from the Eastern <laughs> Orthodox <laughs> tradition. He, he's known as the Green Patriarch, and he has written a lot about the sin of, mm -hmm. of this pollution. Um, and Pope Francis has, has echoed in various ways, and of course many, right. other, many other faith leaders. So I think that for some people that's a, a helpful lens to look at it, and it's important to speak to people on another level. Let's, let's stay with that for a moment. Part of the work that you do at the Center for Ethics is in fact to lift up right, the uh, faith values, religious values, and how they inform how indeed we should engage with uh, the rest of creation and the kind of relationship we should have to the earth and all that there is therein. And so you, the Center of Earth Ethics in many ways focuses on this as a moral issue, as a faith issue. I've attended a couple of the programs from the Center of Earth Ethics and I've always walked away more informed and I've walked away inspired by the many faith traditions and the ways in which those traditions compel us into a caring relationship with our environment and with the, the earth. I also walk away wondering, and I want to ask you, what are the ways in which our faith traditions and religious traditions have been an impediment mm. to our care for the earth? Very important question. I think that we have to look clearly and honestly at that. And I know in your work you have done that with regard to um, the complicity in white supremacy, the ties of co uh, colonization um, with genocide and slavery um, to a form of Christianity that was really about empire and expansion and extraction. That's right. Um, so I believe uh, that a lot of what is seen as secular, including what we just we're talking about the economic growth construct as it is currently presented and understood is actually highly charged with uh, almost um, I mean actually Reverend Barber talks about the cultic commitment to greed at one <laughs> yeah, point and he, sure. I heard him say that and I said exactly it's only a kind of uh, of, of fanaticism mm -hmm. that would have gotten us to this point mm -hmm. it is not reason <laughs> it is not logic uh, and so I believe that um, we can look clearly at a couple of, of, of specific things that, that come from religious traditions. One is um, 
the idea of separation of humanity and the rest of the natural world. So you have the concept of dominion from the book of Genesis. Um, you have the concept of Mago Dei, that only human beings are made in the image of God. Uh, these two things together are quite easily distorted uh, to mean that we are God and we get to dominate everything. And in fact, um, God says we should and is and given, give, given us all of this to dominate. And um, so, of course, there is a fair amount of work done on this and and um, and. I, I won't go into it too much, um, except to say that there's great theology. There's ecofeminism. There's ecowomanism. Um, there are, are many people who have worked on this, and um, but I would just like to say that um, that that when you have a concept like stewardship used by people like. Uh, Scott Pruitt, the former head of the EPA, who uh, professes evangelical Christian faith, and says stewardship means mm -hmm. continuing to dig and burn fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. um, where does that come from? And it comes, it, it actually, I think we have to be quite honest in saying there has been a tradition laid, and it is the same one that laid white supremacy. Um, so the separation of, 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 of humanity and and nature, and and of course, and you've written um, so beautifully about this in your book, Stand Your Ground, uh, about how this unfolded doctrinally. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, mm -hmm. there were the doctrine of discovery, and this was the the whole premise for for Europeans to come to this land was a religious, a set of religious documents that uh, claimed authority from the Bible to conquer, vanquish, and subdue all non-Christian peoples, and non-Christian at the time in the Americas and Africa was any people of, uh, of right. indigenous peoples. Right. And so um, that has been played out and is very much alive and with us today. So this work of unraveling and detoxifying mm. what has been done to lay that foundation is critically important. And the leadership from within people of faith, from within um, Episcopal Divinity School, from yourself, from uh, the many people of faith who are in, who are actively um, claiming the best of those traditions, um, the the scripture in its in its sacred meaning, and explaining where it has been distorted and how we can move on, I think is is absolutely essential to this work. You are precisely right, and 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 the insight and in bringing together the way in which systems dominate and exploit people. It's the same construct that allows for the domination and exploitation of our environment and the rest of creation. And so there is this intrinsic, inextricable link between white supremacist narratives, right, and the narratives that call, have placed us in this position of destroying our environment and the earth. As we've destroyed people, we destroy the earth. And these all are to be seen as sacred creations of, of God and to look at the ways in which faith traditions have been complicit in that. Yeah. Go, yes. So I just had one other thing. Yeah. <laughs> add it. <laughs> the one other thing I want to add, because I think it's kind of interesting and it goes mm -hmm. to gender a little bit mm -hmm. as well, mm -hmm. is that um, I think it is interesting to look back even before the colonization mm -hmm. of the Americas and, and uh, the introduction of the slave trade. Um, 
at uh, at what happened in Europe with the Roman Empire, right. and right. um, there is this thesis from 1967 from a medieval historian named Lynn White hmm. called "The Roots of Our Ecological Crisis." Hmm. It's very it's controversial, um, but what he said is that the victory of Christianity over paganism mm -hmm. in Europe in the Middle Ages was what led to the mindset mm -hmm. of commodification and objectification of nature in how it played out. And I, I think it's worth noting because uh, there were um, indigenous traditions in Europe yeah, as that's well. Right. That's right. And so there were sacred rivers, there were, there were prayers to sacred places, and all of that had, and many women were, were keepers mm -hmm. of those ceremonies and prayers. And so all of that had to be obliterated in order for there to be an empire uh, put in place. Um, and because of the marriage of, 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 of the Roman Empire and Christianity, which we know from the conversion of Constantine, right. there was... Right, think that that was the toxicity of some, Christianity. I think right? there's a That's lot right. to that. That's right, I, I agree. That's right. An extraordinary turn of events to have someone take the symbol and turn it into That's right. its opposite. That's right. And it's the kind of thing that's being done to us today in our politics in a very sinister way as well. So from the conversion of Constantine and then from, um, so that the Roman Empire uh, in coming into Europe, and I'm not a total expert in this, I'm just saying that this rings true to me. Yeah. When I read um, that Lynn White thesis, The Roots of Our Ecological Crisis, and when I also read, and actually he what he doesn't talk about is the burning of witches in Europe, right. the specific targeting of women, um, spiritual leadership uh, in that way, because of course it's also about patriarchy. So I think that that's also an important thing to include when we talk about then the, the, the doctrine of discovery and the because I think it's part of the same story. No, I thank you for that because I think what we have to appreciate is that this is not a crisis that just emerged overnight for no reason. The roots of this are deep. And when we talk about the oppressions of people, the subjugations of people, the subjugations of the earth, this is all the fruit of the same poisonous tree, right? Or the same poisonous root that goes deeply uh, back into our traditions and into our religious traditions and into Christianity. And so, again, the some of... The equation of misogyny. That's right, that's right. All with these, ecological destruction. That's right. All of these are together. Let, let me take a little twist on something that you mentioned uh, previously uh, in your uh, conversation here and in other conversations. And this is this sort of being enamored with fossil fuels, and even the refusal to recognize the, and we know we're living also in a time and a culture where people refuse to recognize that there is a problem and that there's a crisis. And I have heard you speak of that before as an addiction, and mm. you mentioned that uh, here for a moment. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, I think that, um, we, many people have experienced addiction or are close to people who've experienced addiction, and it is, an ex it is, it is instructive about the limits of human nature or the ways in which, um, you know, how the idea that, that, we, that we would self-destruct mm -hmm. as a species, because that is what is happening in slow motion. That's right. Um, 
is not logical, but nor is it logical that someone would be, you know, so hooked on something that is causing them so much damage, but they can't quite see it until, you know, for in many, in many cases, it, it, it comes to um, hitting rock bottom. Um, in, in many cases, people say it comes to uh, turning to a higher power. Uh, those are instructive stories. Think, um, and in a way of understanding what we're doing now, because a lot of people are looking and, and watching because we see climate impacts now. That's right. The Amazon is on fire. The polar ice caps are melting. Um, we're losing species. 60% of, I understand, uh, the animal species has been degraded. Yes. Uh, and how, so the question um, is how much, is, is a similar question as an addict might face, how much more damage do you want to do? Mm -hmm. I think most of us have the feeling we will turn away from fossil fuels or we will die. Right. I mean, and it's not just a feeling, it's, <laughs> it's what, the, uh, what the body of scientists in the IPCC tell us. Right. We are on track currently to go by the year 2100 to a temperature rise, and I'm going to say the Fahrenheit because we're always saying the Celsius, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I think that, it confuses Americans. <laughs> that's right. Right? Because right. we say 1.5 degrees Celsius or, or, uh, is, is what we're shooting for. But we're on track um, for, for about uh, 7 to 9 degree Fahrenheit warming, warming by the year 2100. And what that means, of course, is tipping points. Of that we do not totally understand, and actually the scientists are quite cautious about mm -hmm. when they write these reports. Um, many people criticize them for being overly conservative in their estimates because they can't exactly say what happens when all the ice melts. Right. Um, but we know Gulf streams. The Gulf Stream is changing. Um, we know that uh, that there are many things that would be put in in place that would start to make large portions of this Earth uninhabitable. And um, the, uh, the strife involved in that, is the widespread suffering along that, is unimaginable. So if, if, if we're on road uh, to that kind of destruction, at what point can we decide, we, we'd like to stop now. Let's <laughs> yeah. just try to stop now, as opposed to doing more and more damage. Yeah. And I think the, the, the analogy to addiction is very important. And the addiction is collective. So it is very, uh, and another, another good point I will say that, that Mayor uh, Pete Buttigieg made last night was that, is that this is what government is for. That's right. After I all, think that's right. you know, so it's when you can't right. solve a problem individually, you that's actually right. need to solve it collectively. That's yes. the whole reason for government. Yes. So we need to collectively understand this is an addiction. It has to do with how we get around in our automobiles. It has to do with how we run our buildings. Um, how our food systems are. None of us, very few of us, have succeeded in, in in extricating ourselves from from complicity in this. And so, how do we solve it together? And I think we need to be able to do that um, with the with urgency now. Speaking of that urgency now and the course in which we find ourselves traveling, it is said that in 12 years or less we will be at almost the point of no return. As you said, the Amazon is a rainforest is on fire. Ice caps are melting. 60% uh, of our animal creation uh, has been depleted. You talk about this 
not only in terms of the kind of prophetic response that is important, but also the pastoral response. Mm. I've not quite heard anybody talk about that, the way in which you have, and the way in which we have to respond to the grief. Speak to that. Well, thank you very much. I There has been just recently, in the last year, uh, more and more people are starting to talk about this. And I, I want to um, call out Anna Jane Joyner and Marianne Hitt, who've done a whole series on a podcast about, about this, but not just them. There are other people who are starting to understand um, and articulate uh, Mary Anais Hegar, who's been blogging about this um, as well, uh, the depth of that kind of ecological grief and how it might be present among um, people who don't even engage this topic. It is a factor in not engaging it because mm -hmm. it is so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So the, the, I, I do believe that there are uh, um, a couple of roles, I mean, there's more than a couple of roles that faith communities and faith leaders can play, but I do tend to think about prophetic and pastoral. Yeah. And, um, and we do, and the, the pastoral, in terms of dealing with people's, of course, they're the immediate needs. With we're going to be seeing uh, disasters. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're going as to be, we're seeing them right now, right, with Hurricane Dorian. Absolutely, we have already seen, and we will be seeing more uh, devastating uh, uh, climate uh, change-fueled natural disasters. <laughs> we have to work in our language around it because. Um, in a sense, every storm is different now uh, because the system has already changed. Right. But in any event, you have faith leaders who are dealing with people who are under incredible uh, strain and grief um, and fear for, uh, from the loss and the trauma of that. Um, in addition to some other phases of the ecological crisis, like I, you and I have, have, have been in discussion about Flint, Michigan, and right. cities that, that have their, uh, their drinking water contaminated in rural areas, so that's another phase of it. Um, but in addition to... The, the actual uh, sort of uh, triage of dealing with people in trauma from, from climate disasters. There is also the dealing with the grief of understanding where we are. Yeah. Looking at, I think there, there are three concepts to think about, place, time, and being. Hmm. Um, in which, you know, we as individuals, uh, oftentimes in our discourse, we're we're, we're, we're asked to be consumers. We're asked to think about consumer choices. We're asked to think about our, our belonging um, to different, uh, different races or genders or denominations or whatever it is. But to belong to a place and a time um, is also part of understanding uh, what's happening now. And that, when you look at the scale and the pace, of the ecological destruction that we're living through right now right. is overwhelming. And our own sense of our, what our agency is, is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And I believe that it is going to come from leaders, faith leaders, and I say that in a broad way. I mean, if you're a, a, a counselor in a community center, um, if you're an indigenous keeper of traditions, you know, these are all mm -hmm. forms of ministry. Right. But this is what is called for, is those types of skills to help people through this time. Thank you for that. Provides a good segue to the last couple of questions for you. I, we could talk all afternoon, 
and hopefully we will have another opportunity uh, to talk in conversation. But the woman you just wrote about, Alice Hamilton, she seemed to bring together the prophetic and the pastoral. Mm -hmm. Uh, you called her in your New York Times uh, article a remarkable woman, and that she was. She was a leading expert, as you taught us, taught me, on uh, industrial toxins, led the way in fighting that, was a leader in the earliest legislation and laws against that. But she also gave voice in a more pastoral way uh, to the way in which people suffered because of the misuse and exploitation really of the environment. Pointing out as you again taught me uh, about the way in which food was used as a weapon. And people were intentionally, particularly German children, people were intentionally starved. Uh, in order for certain political agendas uh, to be carried forth. So I thought about food deserts today, right? And the way in which people, particularly people of color, are disproportionately impacted by food deserts. It made me wonder of the intentionality mm. of that kind of thing. And it made me think even more about the remarkable woman that was Alice Hamilton. And so even as you may speak to this phenomenon of using the environment as a weapon against persons, what led you to Alice Hamilton? Oh my goodness, I'm sorry to say that I had not heard of her. How did you, what led you to her? Thank you so much for bringing that up. And I, so I, I wrote a book in 2006 a yes, while back and she way. was one of nine women that I wrote about and the way that I saw and I hadn't heard of her before that actually I did uh, I cast a little bit of a wide net to mm -hmm. look for women who specifically were not as well known now some of the women in my book Ida B. Wells for yes. example uh, Mother Jones Frances Perkins they're the most famous well, people in my book yeah. so they're not it depends you some people you talk to they know everything about those women and some people that's <laughs> yeah, news that's right. to them right but those, I didn't, I specifically didn't write about Eleanor Roosevelt or Rachel Carson just because I, I wanted to discover other uh, mm -hmm. women. So that was one reason. I'm very, I was very interested in that time. Um, and I, I recently wrote this essay in the New York Times, thank you, because it was part of a series um, uh, about the year 1919, which was yeah. a particularly important year for Alice Hamilton. But I originally discovered her when I wrote this book in the early 2000s. <laughs> so that was after, um, I was going through a process of reflecting on being a part of a major presidential political campaign. Um, and I was thinking about the, uh, the, the flaws in our political discourse mm -hmm. and how we understa understand uh, our democratic self-government mm -hmm. here in, in the United States. And um, I really wanted to highlight that it's not about a horse race. It's not about celebrities and money. It's really about people coming together to make life better. Uh, and she stood out to me um, because she was very brave. And um, she, this was at the height of the Industrial Revolution, not unrelated, obviously, to climate change, right. what we're That's going right. through now. So all of this, even, even the whole construct of the Paris Agreement is about 
limiting our uh, temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius above industrial pre-industrial revolution um, limits. So limits, that's right. when we really ramped up um, the destruction that led to the greenhouse gases. Uh, anyway. And so ramped up even the further exploitation of certain communities. Of course, people, yes. And, and women and people of color. Exactly. Um, and so she was one who started, who didn't just look at what was presented to her as hmm. important, but said, what isn't being seen here? Hmm. These are, these poisons in these factories are killing the workers. How, do, that, and no, there is, there were no laws about oversight for that. It was, it was private property. There was no precedent. And so she went in as a doctor and made the case based on the facts and the data to, um, to provide, and, and also a, a sense of, of conscience um, right. in collaboration with facts and data um, that we needed to, um, to decide that certain things are not okay. This is violence. That's the other thing. This, there are, these are assaults on people. If you poison somebody with mercury or lead, um, and, it, and in the end, you know, we're poisoning uh, the whole planet uh, with these greenhouse gases. But if you do that, it is an assault, and it is a form Coretta Scott King and others have talked about slow violence. So she, she reframed and, uh, the way that people were thinking about wh what is now called, we still see as externalities to a business plan as something that was indeed in the civic interest, in the public interest, and was the business of government. And so obviously her work is not done, yeah. but I was drawn to her because she was brave, because she saw things other people didn't see, and she worked very hard, and she was not driven by her ego, obviously, because none of us have ever heard of her. Um, so thank you very much for lifting her up, and I, I, I appreciated the chance to write about her. Well, I found your writing about her and what she was doing is you've uh, just more specifically pointed out, very prescient. And we can learn so much from her work and what she saw that others didn't see at the time, but now which are more grossly manifested uh, in our world, in our society. And you, I didn't, I didn't get to the part of your question about hunger and food deserts and food. I want to acknowledge that yeah. part too. Yeah, speak to it. Yeah, I was just thinking. So her work on on hunger was about about the blockade um, after the uh, in order to get the Germans to sign the very harsh terms of the Versailles Treaty, and so there were uh, German children and other civilians who were starving, and yet a political decision was made to keep that suffering going. Mm -hmm. um, and we now can see in retrospect that that amount of in, in, intentional infliction of suffering. Um, in part led to fertile ground for fascism That's right. in Germany. That's right. Um, in terms of how we look at our world today, uh, it's, it's true in terms of foreign policy. We cannot think that we're going to allow great suffering to go on on the other side of the world. We're going to have our government be complicit in violence that causes um, uh, severe abuse like that and not have it come back, not have it um, impact us. This is there are there are sp spiritual and moral concepts to deal with this in the Bible. There's karma. We need to revisit those things and think about it. And also in terms of how we deal with food and nourishment, that this is a basic element of human dignity and 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 justice and morality and how we're doing that distribution wise within our own um, within our own country here 
is absolutely critical to that. And people don't uh, make the connection about someone's ability to thrive. The nutritious and healthy food should be available to everyone, right. especially. That's the, a human right. Especially <laughs> the poorest. That's right. Most That's vulnerable right. children. That's right. Um, and so we we really need to to fix our society so that we understand that 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 is a basic of That's any. Right. Um, any civilization, um, and I, I appreciate you bringing that up and making that connection. No, thank you for making that connection, and I think that we need to think about that not only in relationship to what is happening to people who are trapped in the cycle of poverty, uh, we need to think about that in relationship to what's happening on the border and the way in which we are just simply depriving people of the necessities of what it means to be human. Uh, and it comes back. Let me end with this, Karina. First of all, anyone that hears you speak, uh, that sees the work you do, should, will automatically see your passion for this work and the integrity of your commitment to doing that which you can do to help the planet, which means to help us all. I've heard you say, and I've been inspired, in fact, by these words that I've heard you speak. And that is, you have said, when we bring together reason with our values, a vision will evolve for the good of the whole. How does that wisdom play itself out in the work you are doing? Uh, well, thank you so much, and I have to say I have, I have such deep uh, respect for your work, Kelly, and I'm really looking forward to what we're going to be able to work on together Yes. since the Center for Earth Ethics and Episcopal Divinity School, our neighbors and colleagues here at Union. Um, it is extremely exciting for me to think about that, um, and I'm honored to be in this conversation with you. I think the way that reason and values uh, come together um, in the work of the Center for Earth Ethics now is very much uh, plays out in terms of looking at um, specific communities, particularly the most vulnerable, marginalized communities, and how um, they are being impacted mm -hmm. by not only the, the, the impacts of climate change, but the impacts of the the system that's causing climate change and the thought system that's causing climate change. So, for example, um, and we like to, to, to bridge scholarship and, and activism. And there are many different kinds of activism. It doesn't always have to be protests. Um, it can also be writing letters and op-eds. It can also be speaking in a thoughtful, informed way around a dinner table mm -hmm. or on the subway uh, to somebody. Um, and so uh, bridging scholarship and activism are, are, is very critical. And in the area um, of this build out of more fossil fuel infrastructure, that's one area that we've been working on. It's insane to do that. There's nothing logical about it. So you have, you know, the reason tells us, including all of the scientists uh, in the IPCC, 97 plus percent of the world's scientists in peer reviewed literature have told us we have to keep uh, the vast majority of the known fossil fuel reserves in the ground. <laughs> um, and yet, people are wanting to drill and frack 
for more. Not only not only just anywhere, but in sacred places. Right. Sacred right. places to the Gwich'in in the Arctic, the indigenous people. We were able to invite them, uh, a representative of the Gwich'in here to Union, to talk with a representative of the Vatican mm. about how we might come together to make sure that their sacred lands will not be opened up for oil drilling. Mm -hmm. We also have been um, in places in Virginia, for example, where there's a, a historic African-American community in Union Hill, Virginia, where they are wanting to site a giant fresh gas compressor mm. station um, for a pipeline that is not needed, that would be de very destructive to the health of the atmosphere as well as locally toxic for this community. And so what we at Center for Earth Ethics uh, and our allies and colleagues joining with the community that's built the movement there are coming to say no. We're going to stand up to this through through supporting the, the actions in the in the lawsuits, the legal actions, through holding elected representatives account, accountable, and through lifting the voices of the community themselves. Mm -hmm. Because that is really uh, part of how you can um, make the values and the reason align in the most powerful way, uh, the most real way. We live in this mm -hmm. time in which our, our, there is so much information out there, and, and, and there's a huge, highly funded misinformation campaign. So we have to get back yep. to truth, real people, real communities, stand with them, stand with those people who are on the front lines of this. And that's how I believe we're actually going to be able to prevail and make this change. Real way. We live in this time in which our, our, there is so much information out there. And, and, and there's a huge, highly funded misinformation campaign. So we have to get back yep. to truth, real people, real communities, stand with them, stand with those people who are on the front lines of this, and that's how I believe we're actually going to be able to prevail and make this change. Corinna Gore, thank you. Thank you so much, Thank Kelly. you for this My conversation. Pleasure. Thank you for the work, and for those of you who are listening or watching, if you take nothing else away from this conversation, take away the need to be informed and to be engaged. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.